Please remain standing as we worship, uh, reading Matthew 13, 24 through 33. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while, he, while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. But both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. This is the word of the Lord. Welcome to church. Please say hello to someone as you have a seat. Good morning. Glad you're with us. Man, daylight savings and, you, and you're here. Good. Jesus, Jesus stars for you uh, in the rain and all that. So anyway, seriously, glad, especially after what we talked about last week. I didn't think anyone was going to show up. So I'm glad you're here. If you were here last week, I mean, if you weren't here last week, go check it out. Um, this is our last conversation uh, in a series we've called Churchianity. Um, so if you're a visiting today, let me just give you a little context, and then we'll jump right in. Every week I've tried to delineate the difference between churchianity, which is it's not a real word. I made that up. Someone, I didn't actually, I didn't make it up. Someone else made that up. Uh, between churchianity and Christianity. Every week I've tried to intro with, hey, let's talk about the differences of these things, all right? And what we said is churchianity is kind of like um, the word on the street of what it means to be a Christian. The word on the street, right? So like, you know, you're talking to someone, he's like, what do you mean to be a Christian? He's like, well, I think it means this and that and this and that. And you're like, oh, cool, okay. Christianity is actually what the Bible says. It means to be a Christian. And those two things can be vastly different, okay? So last week, one, of the, one example of the word on the street uh, was that many people's understanding of Christianity, the good news of Christianity, you, you read the Bible, talk, the good news, the gospel, what's the good news of Christianity? Many people understand the good news of Christianity to be um, a life enhancement program. So what was that? What's that mean? Well, that's the consumerism of our day mixed with whatever Christianity has to offer and basically paints a Christianity um, that puts you in the center. And that reality kind of looks like this, right? God becomes um, a revolving planet around us, the center of the universe, right? Uh, this is very pervasive in, in Christian thinking and American Christianity. God's an add-on to your life. You got a pretty good life. You're a pretty good guy, right? And he gets to be a part of your story if you go to church. He revolves around you. In contrast, the biblical news, the biblical good news, isn't that God's an add-on, but rather that when we get to locate our smaller story in his larger story, we become fully alive, right? And that your redemption was not redemption from a few bad habits here and there, but from redemption from under the dark spiritual powers of the prince of the power of the air. So that was last week. That's why I'm surprised you're back today, right? Out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his son that he loves, right? So last week, churchianity was garnish on the plate of an already full life. That's churchianity. It's churchianity, y'all. That's not Christianity. It's not, not how the Bible paints the picture of salvation. Christianity says you've been rescued from spiritual blindness and slavery to the snake. Amen. That's Christianity. Yep. And it's utterly offensive. I mean, dude, what are you talking about? Right? So today, we're not, I can't get into it. Go to listen last week. Okay, so today, I want to give you another picture of churchianity versus Christianity and then dig into our last kind of misconception word on the street of the good news of Christianity. And here's how I want to delineate churchianity and Christianity today. Churchianity is like a shell. There it is. 
It's like a shell. What do I mean by that? Well, it's a religious structure. It's this. <laughs> it's what we're doing right now. I got this little mic thing. It's all the necessary details to do this thing. All right? I got this mic. We got these lights. There's a stage. There's a projector. You're sitting in chairs looking at me. You're being so sweet, you know? You're listening, right? We sang some songs. I love the part of that shell. That's the part of the shell that I really like, right? I'm giving a nice little speech, and you guys are listening. Where's that in the Bible? <laughs> well, some of those things are in the Bible. But is this format in the Bible? Is it the Bible just lay it out? Well, you got to put the chairs this way. You got to have the lights. You got to have... No, this, this is the shell. It's the shell. It makes something else possible, right? All this stuff, necessary details. I, some of this stuff I love. Some of it I'm just like, eh, <laughs> we have to do it that way, right? But here we are in our society, in our time, in our culture, and this is how we do Christianity, isn't it? It's what you think of when you think of church. It's fine. It's great. I met Jesus in that shell. I'm pretty stoked about that. The shell is a tool, right? But let's just be clear. It's just a tool, Okay? It's just a tool. Some of them are like, dude, they're awesome tools. They're like them, you know, Swiss army, whatever, you know what I mean? Or maybe some kind of crazy laser 3D printer. It's a cool tool, but it's a tool. What's the aim of that tool? Dude, dude, it's real, honest engagement with Jesus at the heart level. That's the substance of the tool. That's the aim of the tool. Engagement with Jesus in your heart. <laughs> you could say that authentic, honest, vulnerable engagement with Jesus, the creator of the universe, is the thing that animates the shell. It brings life to it, bro. It's just an inanimate, dead object outside of the power and the presence of Jesus. Some of you have only ever experienced the shell it's all you've ever experienced. And you're like, dude, why is Christianity so lame? Because you've got a shell, bro. You've never met the thing that animates the shell, that gives the shell significance, that gives the shell meaning, that makes the shell matter. Of course, church is dumb to you, right? There's something that it's getting at that we miss when we settle for coming to church once a week and never dealing with, the, I'm sorry, I'm screaming. I'm just, I'm screaming. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. Okay, listen. You can, I'm going to calm it down. Okay. Everyone breathe. I'm not angry. I'm just excited. Okay. You can have, you can have, <laughs> you're like, you look angry. I'm not angry. I promise. Um, dude, you can have an amazing shell and never use it to engage with Jesus. Can I ask you a question? Well, let me tell you something first. You had an agenda coming here this morning. So did I. We all did. What, what are you using the shell for? What are you using it for? You know, like, dude, I have zero agenda. I'm here because a family member may become, right? Well, that's right. Glad you're here, right? Dude, let's chat real. Why not? We're at church, right? Some of you came here to deconstruct the shell. I'll help you. It's easy. Look, I love doing that. It's fun. Let's hang out. I'll deconstruct the shell with you all day long. It's not that hard. Some of you uh, came here to judge the shell. Also not that hard. Makes you feel way spiritual too. It really makes you feel good. Some people have devoted their entire life to polishing the shell. They fight over the details of the shell. They think the shell has to be perfect. Some people spend their lives ridiculing the shell. Totally distracted by the shell. But you know what? There are other people that have an agenda that comes straight from the pit of their soul. And they come in the shell and they don't give a rip. You know what their interest is? They say, dude, you know, I heard there's this guy that can deal with sin and shame and guilt and I'm drowning in it. Is that guy around here? Is that guy around here anywhere? I don't care about the stupid shell. I'm drowning in something. I can barely breathe. And I heard that there's this guy named Jesus. 
that he can deal with stuff like sin and shame. Is he anywhere around here? And some people with that kind of agenda learn to use the shell for what it was made to do. Just engage with the creator of the universe. All right? I don't care if it has lights and lasers, man. I don't care if it has maroon carpet and pews. It's just a shell, all right? It doesn't save you, right? We're not going to fight over the color of the thing or if I stand over here. Dude, who gives a rip, man? It's a shell, (laughs) okay? So let's, uh, what, what, if, if the shell is kind of more on the irrelevant side, what's the thing that really connects you? What's, what's the thing? Dude, it's engagement with Jesus, what actually connects you? What welcomes Jesus into the cell? Shell, dude, it's the position of your heart. It's the unseen realities of your life that welcomes or rejects Jesus. Man, here's what I mean. We just sang some, we just sang some songs. Some of you used the shell of modern worship to rip your heart open before the living God. And some of you said, that guitar is out of tune. Some of you used the imperfect shell of modern worship songs to rip your heart open before the living God. To say, man, here I am, Lord, all the good, the bad, and the ugly. I'm here right here before you, Jesus. I don't care about that song. I don't care that the piano player doesn't know what he's doing. Right? I was going to say the singer, but I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. Right now. I'll just, I'll, I'm not going to do that. I'll, I'll, I'll take that. All right, I'll take that. Right? <laughs> Your, your preoccupation with the shell, here we go, what an interesting thought. Your preoccupation with the shell distracted you from doing the very thing the shell was designed to help you do. Fascinating humans, creatures, aren't we? The thing the shell was designed to make you, you are so preoccupied with the shell that you're not doing the thing the shell supposed we could, we could say it's an arrow. An arrow. The arrow's pointing somewhere. The church, Christians, art arrows pointing to... Some of you are so distracted by the, the aesthetic of the arrow. You know? You're not looking at the... It's like my kids do this all the time. It drives me insane. Look! My finger! <laughs> it's like... That's the dumbest thing, right? Like, it's, but, but there it is. There it is. You're looking at the finger. You're not looking at what the finger's pointing to, right? Right now, right now, the shell of preaching. Some of you are using it to listen for the voice of God within the rambles of this crazy dude up here. Some of you are listening for what animates the shell. And others of you have decided that guy didn't know what he's talking about. You checked out five minutes ago. We're going to take communion. We're going to take communion. We're going to give time to confess at the end, right? Some of you will decide to use that shell. And for some of you, it will be just a shell, right? Churchianity is preoccupation with externals. It is, churchianity is obsession over the shell. Christianity is obsession over Jesus. Right? The man, the living man himself. So this is our last week. I just want this seared in your minds. You're welcome. I know how church works. All right? You'll probably be around here three years maybe. And then you'll get bored. That's fine. That's fine. That's fine. Wherever you go, no matter where you end up, I want to ruin the shell for you. I do. I don't care where you end up, man. I want you to walk in any church and say, this is a shell. You know what matters about that shell? What you're going to do with it in your heart. That's going to bring significance to it or not. That's going to make it matter or not. It's not the shell, guys. Don't be distracted by the dumb shell. Dude, it's a shell. I like it. I'm doing this for a living. Parts of the shell I love. Parts of it I'm just like, oh, God, do we have to do that? You know? And dude... And we can all, look, what does this do to you as a Christian? What does it do? Dude, all of a sudden, the, the tools that God can use just opens up. It just opens up. You don't got to walk in a church and say, God can't use that. Are you going to tell God what he can and can't use, bro? Seriously? You can tell God he can't use maroon carpet and pews anymore? You can tell God he can't use lasers and smoke? Dude, he can use it all. He can use it all, man. It's a shell. So no matter where you end up, I just want to ruin it. I want you to always understand there's a difference between relationship and religion. There's a difference between engaging with the Son of God, the creator of the universe, all right, and going to church once a week, all right? Big difference. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. Glad you're at the shell, okay? It's a great start on the journey. It's a great start. 
on the journey of what it means to be a Christian. So today we go through our last word on the street, the last perspective of the good news of Christianity, and then we compare it to the Bible. So the first one was Christianity was a bunch of rules. Remember that one? Second one was Christianity is a life enhancement program. And today is this. Here's the word on the street we're going to deal with. Christianity is a plot to deal with your sin so that you can go to heaven when you die. Okay, every single one of these, I'm sorry, churchianity. Well, well, well the misconception is Christianity is this thing. Sorry, anyway, did someone just say what? I feel like someone just said what? Anyway, maybe not. Um, each one of these has truth to it. Each one of these has truth to it. Um, Christianity is a bunch of rules. Christianity is a life enhancement program. Uh, Christianity deals with your sins so you can go to heaven when you die. Okay, each one of those things are true in part. There is a path God's calling you to. And it dramatically enhances your life. Dramatically. And it does deal with your sin. And it does have to do uh, with heaven after death. But is that it? Is Christianity simply this plot to deal with your sin so that when you die, you can go to heaven? Let's just sit with it for a second. When I die, when I die, Christianity. You see? It's super pervasive. In fact, if you got saved in the South, you might have gotten saved by someone saying, if you died right now, do you know where you'd go? Uh, I don't know. I don't want to go to the bad place. What does that imply about what Christianity is? What does that imply? It implies that it has one realm of relevance, one domain where it matters when you die. All right? So for me, that was very pervasive. And what I understood being a Christian was, so Christianity in this context is kind of like uh, insurance for the afterlife. Like, does it make any real impact now? No. I mean, well, yes, because it costs you something and that's annoying, right? But does it impact your life? No, no. You're going to live the way you've always lived. But if you should die, you know, get an accident, it'll kick in. Dallas Willard gave two analogies to help us understand this idea of Christianity for death. He says, it's like car insurance on a car that doesn't even run. Great car insurance. I mean, great. You're covered, right? But the car doesn't go anywhere. Interesting. He says this. Also, you could liken it to um, what he calls barcode faith. You ever heard this? Barcode faith? So this is how it looks. You uh, go to the church thing, you say this prayer, you give some mental assent to a dude that lived a couple thousand years ago about his existence, I guess. I believe he existed, okay? And then you get a barcode so that when you get to the big scanner in the sky, boop, you're in. You're in. You, you said the prayer so that when you get to the scanner in the sky, you're in. Is God real? I don't know. But if he is, I better get that code so that if I ever get there, boop, he'll get Because when I die... I'd like to go to the good place. No one would ever say it that way, you know, I'm being snarky, but this is how we think about it. And if functionally you just look at people's lives, you might say, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Actually, if you look at a lot of Christians' lives, you could rightly conclude you have a religion for death. You have, your Christianity is for death. You have a religion that only kicks in after you die, right? That's a part of it. But isn't it something else? What, dude, what about this life? <laughs> What? Is that all Christians get? Is that when we, I mean, this life's going to stink. All the cool kids are going to party, right? They're going to have drugs and sexual experiences and they're going to go watch the movies. And, but you, not you. This, is gonna, this life's going to stink. But when you die, right, it's going to all pay off. Dude, is that it? Dude, if that's it for you, you have a death religion. You have a religion for death, not for life. What did Jesus actually say the good news was? What was his understanding of what was happening? So let's just say you work for Apple or Google or Amazon and you've spent millions and millions of dollars uh, rolling out this new product and you spent years and years developing this product and the time has come. The time has come to launch this massive millions of dollars. Everyone's invested in it and you're on the marketing team and you got to come out and say what this product is and what it does and what it's about. Okay, just, just, just assert like average intelligence to any marketer, okay? And they're going to put their best foot forward, aren't they? A lot's riding on this. First thing out of the gate, we want to say exactly what's going on. Okay, so when Jesus comes on the scene, what's the very first thing he says he's about? What's the thing that he comes out the gate saying, okay, the time's come, 
Now let's do this. Well, let's look at Mark 1.14 real quick. After John was arrested, Jesus came into the Galilee, came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of the good gospel of God. Oh, the gospel. You know what that word means? Good news. Good job, guys. Points for you. <clears throat> and he said this. Here's what the good news is according to Jesus. The time is fulfilled. That means all the preliminaries are over. The law, the prophets, it's all over. And now it's time and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. So according to Jesus, the good news. Now, did you hear death in there? Did you hear um, uh, afterlife or even heaven? No. Did you hear something about um, uh, the forgiveness of sins even? No, actually. No, what he said was that the kingdom of God was at hand. Fascinating. You know what's interesting? Every other gospel, the first thing that Jesus says, the first kind of ministry when he launches his ministry, it's in the first four chapters of every gospel. Luke 4, 43. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Mark 4, 23. Went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming what? The gospel of the kingdom. What'd that look like? Oh, well, he's healing every disease and affliction among the people. That, interesting. Hmm. John 3, 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom. So according to Jesus, the good news of Christianity is not say this prayer so that when you die, you can go to heaven, right? It's that the kingdom of God's at hand. Interesting. Heaven's not... It, that's not even in. Now, what's fascinating, the Matthew passages we read earlier that, that uh, Mike read a bunch of, it does say heaven there, didn't it? In fact, it didn't say kingdom of God. It said kingdom of heaven. Did, it, did you guys read that? Did you guys see that? Okay, yes, yes, great point. So the question is, how do we know when the biblical authors say heaven that they are thinking about the same thing we are thinking about? If I say the word heaven to you, what comes to mind? Fat, naked babies with wings and harps floating on clouds. The sweet by and by. Um, playing baseball with Babe Ruth and eating ice cream all day. Some of you think of heaven as the place where disembodied spirits go, where ghosts live, basically, right? Uh, some of you, maybe you think of like some sort of Marvel seventh dimension, and you get to that dimension through death. That's the gate, right? That's the wormhole that you get it through, right? What did the biblical authors have in mind when they said the word heaven? Now, I don't want to upset anyone, but uh, the Bible was not written in English. Nor is it written by white dudes. Um, primarily, primarily, the Bible is written in Hebrew and Greek, primarily. So if you start word searching the original language, not the English translation, but the original language, you begin to see, now this is true for anything in the Bible. You want to know what the Bible means? Word search in the original language, how to do that? It's called an interlinear concordance, and there's a bajillion of them you can pop your phone out and have access to in five seconds. Um, if you start searching the original language, you begin to see really fascinating translation and interpretation issues. Because what you find is you will have the same Hebrew or Greek word, say it's 200 times in, in the scripture. Yep, that word pops up 200 times. And if you, then you look it up and then you see that actually um, 50 of those times it's translated with this English word and 50 of those times it's translated with this English word and 50 of those times it's translated with this English word because the one Hebrew, the, the Hebrew has more expansive meaning than our English language does. And, and sometimes the context doesn't make sense. You know, and this is very true of the word heaven. Um, if you search heaven um, in the New Testament, what you're going to find is nine times. Now, most of the time, it's heaven. It's just, you know, it's it, nine times it's used in a completely different context. In Matthew 6, 26, is the ESV translation, actually nine times. Other translations is more. Matthew 6, 26, it says this. Look at the birds of the heavens. Uranus, it's the heavens. Interesting. So the kingdom of heaven is, is, is not that place where spirits go when they die. It's where the birds fly. Where do the birds fly? Well, in the sky. In, nine times. Instead of heaven, it's translated air. Same word. Interesting. Uh, Hebrew is the same. Hebrew is the same. Different word. I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. It reminded me of M. Night Shalom, my hand's last name. But... <laughs> 
Uh, when it says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens declare, that's, that's what we read. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Um, that's called Hebrew parallelism. Very fascinating there. Seems the same thing twice, two different ways to refine the meaning of what he's saying. It's a fantastic tool when you're reading the book of Psalms. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Is he saying that the unseen realm where you go when you die, the land of disembodied spirits declares the glory of God? No, not at all. What is he saying? It's declaring the glory of God. The sky, where the sun is, in the moon, in the clouds, where God dwells, you know, up there. In fact, if you look at heaven in the BLB outline biblical of usage, it defines heaven as this, the vaulted expanse of the sky where all visible things are in it. Heaven's also defined as the universe or the world, the region where the clouds and tempest gather, where thunder and lightnings are produced. It's also that higher order of things where God uh, perfectly dwells. Very interesting. When they say heaven, and they also mean sky, right? Does that mean if you go up in outer space, you'll find God? Those, we, right? Like the Russian cosmonaut, what's his face? Yuri Gregorin, who claimed to have said when he got out of space that I don't see God up there. Have you seen this dumb thing? It's so funny. Just, I love that little Chinese dude's face. So funny. Um, he says, I see no God. Right? There's the logical conclusion. Well, if God's up there somewhere, if we go out there, then we should find him. See, that's the kind of questions moderns bring to the Bible. The Bible's not trying to answer that question. They're not trying to locate God geographically. You know what? We get an idea of what the Bible means when it says heaven in Isaiah 55. It says this, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. We're not talking about physical elevation or geographical height. We're talking about height in terms of significance, height in terms of meaning, in terms of perfection, right? A higher wisdom, a higher joy, a higher way to exist. When the Bible says heaven, it does not mean only the place you go where you die. It is talking about where God dwells, where perfect love and justice are maintained, but it's also talking about the atmosphere around you, where birds fly, where rain comes from. It's a, it, wait, what does it mean? Well, it's around you, but it's where? Above you. You see? It's, it's higher than you. That's the point. It's where God dwells. He's higher. He's more glorious. His kingdom is better in every way. It's higher, right? And when Jesus came, he was apparently offering how to live at a higher level of existence, offering a way that raises you up, right? It's apparently on offer in Jesus. It's what he came to bring according to Jesus, that the kingdom of the heavens. In fact, I didn't say this earlier, I got off my notes, but uh, the, when you see that word uranos in the New Testament, heavens, it's always plural. It's never singular. It's always, in fact, and there is always the in front of it, almost in every place in the New Testament. It is never just heaven. It is the heavens in the original language, which makes it more clear what he's talking about. The heavens up there, above, right? And G when Jesus came, he said, the kingdom of God's at hand. The kingdom of the heavens, that higher way of existence, the way that's higher than yours has come to you. You can reach out and touch it. It's at hand in Jesus. How? By physically dying. No, it's not what we read. No, what did he say in Mark 1? He said, the time has come, the kingdom of heaven's at hand, repent and believe. Hey guys, how's the shell going right now? Are you using the shell? Listening for the voice of God? Or are you just distracted by me? How's it going? Luke 17, 20 says this, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, dude, the kingdom of God's not coming in ways that can be observed. Can't go in outer space and find him. Nor will they say, look, here it is or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Your scripture might say, um, in, within, the kingdom of God's within. Is he talking about where you go when you die? No, he can't be. The out, right? What is he saying? It's not a physical location in outer space. Heaven is not a physical location in outer space. Heaven is not out there somewhere. 
And apparently, you can enter in to heaven through these two mechanisms called repentance and faith, according to Jesus, right now, before you die. Jesus gets at this another way when he defines eternal life. We think eternal life happens when? When you die, right? And then you get to go on and live in the hereafter. It's when you die, not according to Jesus. John 17, three says this, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus whom you have sent. Apparently, according to Jesus, eternal life does not start when you die. In other words, eternal life is not simply talking about sequences of time. It's talking about a quality of life. You understand what I mean? When Jesus says, I've come that they may have life, he is not saying he's come just so you can live after you die. He's saying, I've come to give you a different quality of life, a kind of life that's better than the one you're living now, a quality of life. You understand? It's a kind of living that not even death can take away from you. It's eternal in its quality. It's not just about time, you see. It's, it's, it's a quality of life that God comes to give to us now. So the point one is, whatever the kingdom of God is, it's something accessible to us here and now in Jesus. What is it exactly? What's the nature of this kingdom being opened up? There's another word that really helps us understand what Jesus is getting at. And that, that word is kingdom. Now, for many of us, when I say the word kingdom, and you think of what's a kingdom, you think, well, it's where it's like a kingdom, where king, kings, Right? And so like a Renaissance festival, right? Where dudes dress up in metal and they joust each other. King, King Arthur, right? Or like maybe when I say kingdom, you think of that place, that medieval knights place where you eat dinner and smell horse poop at the same time. <laughs> For many of us, kingdom feels just as disconnected and irrelevant as the word heaven. It's just out, what does that even mean, right? And fascinating thing about the ministry of Jesus. He was highly committed to explaining to you what he meant when he said kingdom of God. Have you ever read the parables of Jesus? Some of them are really weird. Almost every one of them is describing something. Do you know what's before almost every parable of Jesus? The kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. Guys, almost every parable of Jesus is trying to describe to you what he's talking about when he says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was really serious about you understanding this, right? So you can shake all them parables together and get an idea of what he's talking about. But the Lord's prayer helps us too. You know the Lord's prayer? Yeah, our Father in heaven, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. You know what that is? It's a Hebrew parallelism. It's two things saying the same things to help you understand what he's talking about. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So according to Jesus, what's the thing that signifies where God's kingdom is? Well, it's where God's will is done. The kingdom has something to do with the will, right? Ah, okay. Let's ask another question. What makes heaven heaven? What makes heaven perfect in every way? Well, according to Jesus, it's that God's will is done perfectly there. And that's what makes it heaven. In other words, you could say it this way. The kingdom of God, um, or the kingdom of the heavens, is anywhere God gets his way perfectly. The kingdom of the heavens is anywhere God gets his way perfectly. In the olden days and even today, we delineate kingdoms and countries by what? Legalities, laws. If we go across into Canada, their laws kick in. It's where they get their way, right? We go to Europe. Okay, we're in their domain. The thing that delineates the countries and kingdoms today and in history is whose way is done, whose will is executed. You see? So when Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand, what he means is the rule and reign of God has come to you. The question is, is that good news to you? Do, listen, this is how a lot of Christians live, all right? We live knowing there are things we ought to do and things we ought not to do, okay? You're going along life and now you hang out with Christians and there's all these rules and so you get this little voice that starts popping up in your head saying, you shouldn't look at that. And we're like, oh, 
you know? And then, and then we're doing life and we see someone in need and this little voice says, you should give them money. And we're like, that's my own money, man. We don't give them money, right? And you're really annoyed that God is in your life. It annoys you. You hear that voice and you're like, I want to do that thing. And you're really annoyed that God's in your life at all. Dude, listen, if, if that's your position, let, let, here, let me, t- let me ask you. How do you feel when I say this sentence? What if God had his way perfectly in your thought life? How does that make you feel? What if I said this? How does it make you feel to think of God reigning and ruling perfectly over what you look at with your eyes? How do you feel when I say, what, what, what if God perfectly ruled and reigned over how you behave at work, how you approach your work ethic? Does that feel good to you? Does that thought to you think, oh yeah, or does that feel oppressive to you? What if I said, what if God perfectly ruled and reigned over your marriage, over what you do with your free time, over what you do with your money? If that thought feels oppressive to you, can I say something to you? What makes you think you'd like heaven? I'm dead serious. If you don't like God mucking with your life here and there, I got a newsflash for you. Heaven would be hell for you. You wouldn't like heaven at all. Because according to Jesus, in heaven, God gets his way perfectly. And you say, well, I'll be different when I die. Where do you read that in the Bible? Where do you read that in the Bible? You, you get a new body. It's a, I mean, but the you that's you, you're not your body. You get it. You, you, the you, the you that likes what you like and does what you do, that's going to stay the same. In fact, dude, here's a thought for you. What if all death does is freeze you as the I don't like God type person? What if that's all death is? Is being frozen as the kind of person who hates God, who won't listen to him, who thinks he's an evil oppressor trying to suck the joy out of life. (sighs) Okay, well, that's weird, right? You know, something's cool about this uh, or something that helps us understand this. You have a kingdom too. You know that? Um, If I said, I won't make you do it, but if I just said, raise your hand, you could raise your hand, right? For most of us in this room, I think everyone can raise their hand. How How would you do that? Well, it's because it's within the range of your effective will. It's within your kingdom. For the most part, your body is a good example of a kingdom. And now some of us, we'd say, that's not true because my hair is falling out and I would not, you know, and, and, you know, and so I don't get my way perfectly there, but generally within limitations, you get your way perfectly in your body. It's where your, it's the effective range of your, of your will. All right. Right now, if I said now jump on the roof and do a Marvel pose and float around and then throw your hammer down and call lightning from heaven, we'd say, well, we can't do that. Why not? Well, because it's not within the range of your effective will. Right? So God, creator of the universe, right, comes to earth and says, the range of my effective will has come to man. The range of my effective will has come in Jesus. In Jesus, my will is done perfectly. Do you want in on that? Or, or would you like to maintain control over your little kingdom, your little power pack? See, we tend to think God's on some power trip when he says, surrender and submit to me. But you understand what what happens when Jesus' kingdom comes is what's on offer is the rule and reign of God. And if you say no to God, you know what he does? When, when When Adam and Eve said no to God and took the apple, what was the consequence of that? What was supposed to be the consequence? Anyone? Death, death, yes. If you take it, you will die. Let me ask you a question. Did God strike them dead in that moment? No, they lived. Let me ask you another question. Now, they, they you know, had to deal with the consequences of their actions, but God didn't strike him dead in the moment, did he? When uh, Cain killed Abel, do you know in Levitical law, what's the penalty of, de- of murder? Capital punishment. Correct, death. Um, did God kill Cain in that moment? Who gave the Levitical law? God. Dude, God broke his own rules. He didn't kill Cain. He didn't. In fact, you know what he did? He protected him. This is bizarre. 
Dude, he put it, remember, you ever read the story? He protected Cain. Look, when you say no to God, when you say you don't want to submit to his kingdom, you know what he says? He, he says, number one, okay. Okay. You, you want to have your way? Okay. You can go to the place where men rape at will and where men do wickedness at will and where men do violence and steal at will. You can go to that place. It's called hell. But you want to get in the kingdom, then someone else's will is at play. Someone else's, someone else's rule and reign has to be welcomed into your living. Are we, are we, just, are we chatting on this? So God, not only did God say he let them off, that he offered, he offered protection for them. Adam and Eve sacrifices the first animal and clothes their nakedness. Cain puts a symbol of protection on him. Ah, oh, it's so fascinating. When you say no to God, it's actually you who has the power trip, right? It's you who are insisting that you know better than God. This is all very fascinating. If you don't think that the rule and reign of God, if, if that to you feels oppressive, then you are on your way to hell. And you better wake up. Because in heaven, God gets his way perfectly, right? It's a fascinating idea, isn't it? Let me go down some because I got way off my notes. C.S. Lewis says this. There are only two kinds of people in the world. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without self-choice, there could be no hell. Here's another component in this conversation. God will rarely override your will. When he speaks, he speaks in ways that's usually really easily ignored. You know, in the prophet, does he speak in the fire? Does he speak in the earthquake? Mm -mm. He speaks in a subtle breeze. See, God speaks to you in ways that you can easily ignore. Some of you are very effective at that with my sermons, you know? You, you, begin, you begin deconstructing me as a person so you don't have to listen to the things that are coming out of my mouth, right? See, God speaks in ways that are easily rejected. Easily rejected, man. Easily rebuffed. God gives you the freedom to choose, just like he's given every person in history, from Adam and Eve all the way till today, right? But that's not all he does. Jesus stepped into the mess of our own choices and offered protection from the darkness that we've subjected ourselves to. Jesus said, the kingdom of God's at hand. Heaven had come to earth in him. Why? Because he fully surrendered, you see? See, Jesus passed the test that you failed, that I failed. He completely yielded to the loving rule of the king. And then he offered that victory to us. When Jesus came, y'all, he changed the entire motivation of obedience. We no longer submit to God. We no longer get into the kingdom of God uh, like a slave gets in. What was prophesied about what Jesus would do is we would get into the kingdom of God like a lover. We would submit to the kingdom of God uh, like a friend submits to a friend out of respect and affection and trust. John 15, 15, I don't call you slaves, I call you friends. Hosea 2, 16, in that day, you're gonna call the Lord lover not master. See, Jesus came to show you the beauty of heaven. He came to show you the beauty of heaven, y'all. What did it look like? If in Jesus, heaven had come to earth, what does it look like? Well, dude, look at his ministry. That's God's will perfectly played out. What did it look like? It looks like him inviting people in over and over again. Him continually saying uh, to anyone with ears that hear, to anyone, anyone who has ears, right? His, his ministry is marked by open invitation, y'all. Over and over, it's marked by supernatural compassion. It's marked by people being healed physically. It's marked by the blind regaining their sight. What does heaven look like? It's marked by dead people coming to life. It's marked by children being restored to their parents. It's marked by dark oppression being vanquished under his power. That's what heaven looks like. And I'm telling you something, man, there's something good there. And if your heart can't understand the beauty of that and say, I want that, then you wouldn't like heaven. If the thought of having to forgive someone is so oppressive to you, then you would not like heaven because it doesn't go there. It doesn't. Jesus makes it clear, dude, you got to forgive, like abundantly forgive, like seven times 70 forgive. 
And if that to you feels oppressive, then you wouldn't like the dynamic that does that play in heaven. Dude, what does it look like? What's the kingdom of heaven look like? Social outcast being brought in. That's what Jesus did over and over again. What's the kingdom of heaven look like? What's heaven like? It looks like free forgiveness of sins. Here's the thing though. He's not going to force it on you. He's not going to force you into the kingdom. He's going to invite you. You can say no, right? Because as one person said, God is a gentleman and will not force anyone to be with him who does not want to be with him. But you see, the point is in Jesus, we see God's perfect intentions for the earth. Can I say that again? In Jesus, we see God's perfect intention for the earth, people being made new. Do you see anything desirable in the ministry of Jesus? Right? Is, is it attractive to you? What about anger? I can be so frustrated and impatient with my kids. Can I tell you the thought of anger not being the reflected action of my heart? You know what that feels to me like? Heaven. I win. You, you know what? You know the thought of not being tempted to lust and look, you know what that feels like to me? Praise the Lord. Heaven. Dude, if you have the smallest desire to submit to the kingdom of God, you know what Jesus will do? He will blow on that little ember until it becomes a flame. But if you are insistent on maintaining your own kingdom, he will not force you. He's not going to subjugate you like the rulers of the earth. The invitation on the table is to submit to the rule and reign of God. And if that's good news to you, well, then, then that's kingdom, right? Let me, say, let me say it this way. Let me give you one prophecy and then we'll get out of here. One prophecy in Isaiah about how the Messiah would bring the kingdom. Here's, here's how he does it. Ready? Um... You have it up there? Do I have it there, um, Seth? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so it's Matthew quoting the Old Testament. He will not quarrel or cry aloud. He's quoting Isaiah. Nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not quench. Until he brings justice to victory. Oh, and in his name, the Gentiles are going to hope. What, let's just sit with this real quick before we get out of here. A bruised reed... What is that? A reed is this thing that grows really high above the grass. You've ever seen those, right? Nice, big, strong things, sit up, Lord. And it, but if you hit them real hard, they get bruised. And they start to do what? Right? They stop doing the thing that they're kind of created to do. Be this kind of towering figure over the landscape, right? Um, they get bruised and they, they limp over, right? So... What does that look like in us? Well, you know, you give in to a little sin. Uh, you get hurt. You get betrayed. You, you, were manned, you were made to stand straight up before God, to be an image of God. And just a little life can kind of bend you over, can it? You know, a little struggle. Some of us right now feel bent over in life. We feel bruised. We feel downtrodden. Hmm? Right? What else does it say? A smoldering wick. What's that? Well, it's a candle just about to go out. Well, actually, it's after it goes out. And all you have is this little, little bit of smoke, right? Right? Just a little flame. It, it, it burnt a little too hot, got a little too big for its pants, and it melted more wax than it ought to. And what happens? The flame drowns in the wax. Some of you right now, your life of faith before God has, has, feels like it's been drowned. Some of you right now, your, your willingness to, to be on board with Jesus, your desire to pursue him, to submit to him, to be in community, is, has all but gone out. All but gone out. You have no drive for it. It's, it's drowned out. Why? Man, life, you know? This happened, this happened. Man, you're a Bruce Reed, man. You're a smoldering wick. You're about to go out. You know what's not going to fix it? Hard allegiance to some doctrine or something like that, right? You don't need some, some dude barking orders at you to get it together. You know what's going to fix it? The gentle compassion of Jesus. That's what it says about who Jesus is. He comes up on the scene and he's not going to force his way into your life. But you know what he's going to do? He's going to help you stand up straight. 
He's gonna take the smoldering, drowning wick that your faith is, he's gonna breathe life onto it again. That, you know, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, y'all. So let me just say two things as we end, man. If you're not obeying God in the unseen places of your life, you need to spend some real time considering whether or not you'd actually like heaven. And you need to take another look at the ministry and teaching of Jesus and see if there's anything desirable in that. Because if you can't see anything desirable in the ministry and teaching of Jesus, you would not like heaven. So why the kingdom, the language of kingdom is important for us. See, a religion for death might promise something later on, but it still leaves you warring against the kingdom in this life. And number two is this. Today, if you've realized in fact um, that you would not like heaven (laughs) and your heart is not happy with that and you want to change that about yourself, Jesus said the mechanisms for that are two things, repentance and faith. Repent does not mean get emotional. Often that is the effect of repentance. Repentance mean, is metanoia. It, you know what meta means? Metaphysics? What's metaphysics? Well, it's the things that, be, that reside outside of the physical. Metaphysics. Metanoia means outside. You know what noia means? It's cognitions. Word cognition. Meta means outside of the way you think. That's what the word repentance means. Repentance means to think about your thinking. Repentance means assess the way that you are. Get outside of your thinking and look at it from a different perspective. You do this all the time. You have this scenario, you're talking with a friend and you say this and that and that happened. And they say, well, you know, if you look at it this way and you say, oh, oh yeah, I hadn't thought about that. You just repented. Did you cry? No, you thought about your thinking. Someone else inserted something from the outside and you said, oh, interesting. I've just inserted some stuff from the outside, right? What is heaven? What is death? What is the kingdom of God? Now you can just sit with that for a while. Some of you today, you need to do some serious repentance and I don't mean come down and cry and you can do that if you want. I mean, think about your thinking. I mean, you need to assess the way that you are thinking about life. And the other thing is faith. That's the other thing Jesus said, all right? And faith doesn't mean give mental assent to the fact that some dude lived 2000 years ago. It means believe him, trust him, take him at his word. That's the faith of the New Testament. It's not that we believe in Jesus like we believe in the fairy tale or Santa Claus. It means that we believe him what he said. And so if you find yourself today feeling locked outside of the kingdom of God, those are the two things I would put before you. You need to think about the way you think and just believe in Jesus. Think about his words and see if they're attractive to you. If you are not a Christian today, and maybe for the first time you want to say, you know what, dude, I want to, I want to get in on this. I want, to tr- I want to see what the kingdom of God looks like in my life. Dude, We'd love to pray for you. Let's stand. Come to the table. Jesus, thank you so much. Um, God, for the, com- I don't know, I'm, I'm just, I'm thankful that your word is, is just, it, it draws us in, Lord. It's not always uh, so simple. There's nuance to it. There's tension when we read your word in all of its fullness. God, help us uh, work our way intellectually through what these things mean, Lord. Um, how your forgiveness of sin brings the kingdom. Uh, It's just, uh, it's fascinating. It's remarkable to me, Lord. So thank you for my brothers and sisters. God, I pray that you would lift them up today. God, I pray that you would strengthen their bones. God, I pray that the, um, if their life feels like a reed bent over, God, that you'd straighten their backs in the name of Jesus. We love you, God. We love um, who you are and what you've done in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. If we can pray for you, man, come forward and let us pray for you. If not, have a great week. We'll see you next time.